Galatians chapter 2 is where we are studying. It's where we began last week, and grateful for the time of fellowship together, and we pray that continues afterward, and all the way up until He does return for us. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Father, we praise you and come to your word to hear what you would have to say, what you would teach us, Lord, how we need to grow, what we need to be convicted in, what we need to be challenged in. Lord, how we can grow in our love and fear of you. Father, we praise you and thank you for this time of worship that we've had already in music, praising you and thanking you for your faithfulness and your mercy. God, I pray that we would continue praising and worshiping you now as we hear from you in your word. In the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus, amen. It's a joy to be with you again studying this word of God. We started studying verses 1 through 10 last week. Well, actually, we didn't actually. We didn't even get to the verses last week. We were just excited to bridge the gap of where we've been so far in Galatians up to the point that we're in now. Um, tracing Paul's argument here is demonstrating why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only gospel, the only true, real gospel, and why you should believe that. And giving reasons for why you should believe uh, is an area of study that we call apologetics. Apologetics from the word apology, which in this context does not mean to say I'm sorry, but to say this is why, this is the reason I believe, and this is the reason or a defense for the reason that you should believe also. So you see in your notes there, an apology, the apologetics here means to give a defense or a reason to believe. And we remember from Peter, when we studied 1 Peter and in chapter 3, he said, and he taught us that even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. We will be persecuted in this world, Jesus says. The world will hate you because it hated me, Jesus said. So when you are suffering for righteousness' sake, not snakes, that has nothing to do with the passage, <laughs> forgive my tongue, Jesus says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, apology, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, 
And he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So, summarizing what Peter says about apologies, apologetics, he says, honoring Christ the Lord as holy replaces fear of persecution as we give people the gospel of Jesus Christ and as we give them a reason or defense for why we have hope in Him. Instead of being afraid of talking to people about the gospel, we honor Christ the Lord as holy, the holy God, and that gives us hope. And because we have that hope, people will ask us. And because we have that hope, we have a reason to give them. It's Jesus and the gospel. But one of the reasons that I brought up this verse because of this apologetic uh, teaching and, and why this is so encouraging to us is because of what he says at the end. He tells us plainly that people are not necessarily just going to believe because you give an excellent defense for the reason, for the hope that you have. He says afterward that after your defense, after your consistent holiness, your good behavior in Christ, they may still slander and revile you. They may still reject Jesus, but in the end they will be put to shame. And so it's encouraging to us to know that even in our best days when we are completely ready to give an answer and a reason for the hope that we have, people will still, they'll still reject it, but it won't be our fault. It won't be your fault when you're faithful with the message. So Paul is giving a defense for this gospel being the gospel, the only one from God, the only one that saves. And they need to know not only that this is the true gospel, but they need to know that there are false gospels out there. There are many out there. They need to know that they are falling for one. And so Paul writes Galatians. And Paul's going to get very specific about the problems in that false gospel. And he's going to get very heated about those false teachers. Brothers and sisters, that's why we've been highlighting the differences between this true gospel and so many others that are out there that would substitute the real gospel's place. Even the distortions that we make. We talked about the, the distortions and, and how we can twist and distort it ourselves in our own mind. We need to know that those are wrong. Here's the true, pure gospel. This is the truth, the only one from God. We need to be able to tell the difference between the truth and all others. So Paul's giving us this apologetic, this apology. This is why you should believe this is the only gospel. But I thought it was interesting, you, you may have noticed this, Paul does not begin his apologetic with a defense for the existence of God. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, look, here's why God is God. He's the only true God. He's the living God. You should believe that. In fact, nowhere in scriptures do we see an apology, a defense for the reason for just the existence of God before we get to the defense for the reason for why this is the only true gospel from God. And some people have gotten a little disheartened by that. You know, God, why didn't you tell us in your word? How do I convince somebody that you exist? Well, God tells us in his word what he intended to prove to people that he exists. In a word, it's creation. Creation is meant to prove the existence of God. Psalm 19 verses 1 through 6 show us that the heavens and the sky work together with day and night to declare, proclaim, and reveal the knowledge of God. Universally, in understood language without even actually any words, the creation around us proclaims the glory of God. Psalm 50 verse 6 says, the heavens declare God's righteousness because he is judge. That's what, that's what the heavens do, the skies and the in space above us. Psalm 97 6 says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. That's what the heavens do. That's what the skies do. That's what creation all around us is meant to do. That is the apologetic for, for God's existence. 
The word of God was not meant to be a step-by-step proof that God exists. It just takes for granted that he does because we have creation all around us. Romans 1 teaches us that every person knows there is a God. Even the people that come and say, you know, I don't believe there's a God. There's no such thing as God. No, there, there is a God, and, and everybody knows there is a God. His eternal attributes are clear to them just from creation. Again, Romans 1 teaches, not just the skies and, and space, but everything he's made. It is a willful decision not to believe in God, not to give him thanks, not to praise him or honor him as God. Rather, they invent stories of accidental explosions, random chance mutations to explain creation, or they just invent other gods. And they worship the creation. They worship their own imagination rather than the creator. So this may be a little bit disappointing for some, but I don't believe, and it may be encouraging for others, <laughs> I don't believe that we have to try to set out to prove God exists. God's already done that in creation. That's creation's job. And if you look around and you watch and you learn and you study and you see creation, wow, it does a really great job of that <laughs> all by itself. It does a marvelous job of that, even despite the curse of sin and consequences. And if people will reject God's apologetic for his existence in creation, I'm not going to be able to come up with a better argument that's going to convince somebody that he exists. Now, I don't want to disparage any of those at all. My reason for going through all of this is to encourage you to share your faith, share your testimony, share this gospel I, can't, I, I can think of plenty of times growing up where I was held back from sharing my, my testimony. I was, I was afraid to share my, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ because I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to answer these sophisticated questions and, and, and these, these challenges that were going to come against anything I would have to say. You know, I've got to memorize the ontological argument for the existence of God, the teleological, the cosmological, the moral arguments of God. You know, I've got to memorize all these things and try to convince somebody there is a God before I can even get to the gospel. And I just want to encourage you. What you need to know is Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen from the dead, and he's coming back. Know the Jesus Christ of the scriptures Know the gospel, the one that brought you salvation, the one that you hope in now every day and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with yourself constantly, with your family constantly, so that when you're out in the world, people are looking at you like, you're talking crazy. You're talking about this Jesus all the time. Who is this? <laughs> and you're not, you don't have to be afraid. We've, we've already set him aside and honored him as holy as Lord. Many people may still slander and revile and argue, but we share the reason for our hope with gentleness, with respect, no matter what anyone else says, because we are certain, because we know. How do we know? How do we know that this is the true gospel? How can we be so sure? Well, we talked last week about how all other religions and philosophies attempt to persuade people that they've got the truth, they've got the real gospel with a feeling with, or with better feelings than you had before, with peaceful feelings that, that you're pleasing God or gods or the universe or whatever it is that they're trying to set out. You're pleasing them so you should feel better. You, you, should, you should feel good about that. And they depend on those feelings to convince you to follow them. But Christianity, following Christ, does not depend on a human feeling to feel that it's right. It doesn't depend on any human being to convey the right feelings. Or Like you have to be a salesman, right? Like we have to go around trying to convince people, look, I've got a great plan for you. If you will just accept this right now and for 1995, you know, if you act today, you know... (laughs) 
we have the truth of the gospel and we give it to people. We share the, we don't have to be the right kind of person to share the gospel. Just be faithful with the message of Jesus Christ saving us from our sins. So Paul is giving the Galatians and us an apology, a defense for this being the only gospel. And his argument to this point has been this is a divine gospel. This came directly from God. From Jesus Christ himself. Paul didn't invent it. No human being did. And if you want proof, look at how this gospel brings glory to God. How do you see it? It's revealed. Paul says, look at my life. <laughs> look at me. Look what it did in my life. He was a devoted follower of Judaism of the first century, wholly dedicated to doing everything in his power to earn God's pleasure through his works. He hated the gospel. He wanted to destroy the gospel and everyone who believed in it. He was actively and aggressively trying to eliminate it. But then he received and he believed the gospel. So he began preaching it to others. And when people heard that, even though he was a nobody, they didn't know him at all, they heard that this guy that was the ultra persecutor of the church has now believed in this gospel and he's preaching it to other people. And they glorified God because of him. That's what he says. That's what the result is. When the gospel comes, it changes a person and people glorify God. The change of a human life from sinful, rebellious, from a Jesus rejecter to a Christ follower brings glory to God. It's his work. It's his gospel. And it's on full display every time it happens in a person's life. And every time someone comes into contact with you, when they see the gospel at work in your life, that brings glory to God. Even when they reject it. Even if they reject it, it still brings glory to God. So in your notes, you see it again. The persuasion of the gospel is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. It's not our feelings. It's it's not dependent on anything. It all just points to God's glory. So let's look at three parts. Three more parts to the display of God's glory in Paul's life as part of the defense for this being the gospel, the divine gospel. God's glory is made visible in three ways in these verses, 1 through 10. Number one, we should believe in the divine gospel rather than any false gospel because of the confirmation of faithfulness, the confirmation of faithfulness to it over time. We see this in verses one, two, and three. Not only did Paul believe this divine gospel, he he didn't just come up with it and then start talking about it and then fizzle out. He remained faithful to it over the course of time. Verse 1 says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. What changed during that 14-year period, Paul? Nothing. (laughs) We want to know what happened. You want to know what happened? The gospel happened, and the gospel kept happening. For 14 years, he said, the same divine gospel. Now, remember, this is a valid test. Is this thing going to last? That's what what we want to know. Is this thing going to just fizzle out, peter out, and fall apart? Or is it going to be a lasting change? In fact, this was a test that Paul's own honored Pharisee teacher Gamaliel used in Acts chapter 5. After Jesus had been crucified, he'd been raised, he'd been, he had ascended into heaven, the, the apostles, the disciples are, are spreading this message. And they come before the council, the Pharisees, in Acts chapter 5, and the council wants to kill Peter and John and the apostles. They said, let's just kill him and be done with this. The honored Gamaliel, the Pharisee teacher, the teacher of Pharisees, stood up and he said, Look, there was a guy named Theudas. He rose up claiming to be somebody, and 400 people followed him until he died. And then the whole thing fell apart. 
Later, a guy named Judas stood up. A bunch of people followed him. But as soon as he died, everybody scattered. And again, it came to nothing. Jesus was the leader of these guys, Gamaliel says. So don't kill them. Just leave them alone. It's either going to fall apart by itself or you're going to be found to be the ones fighting against God if it lasts. That was his test. That was part of his test for whether this was from God. It's a valid test. It's not the only test. It's not the only proof that we need, but it's a valid part of a test. Is this going to last? Paul and this message are passing that test. It's been 14 years. Now, some people question. They say, well, you know, Paul said after three years he went to Jerusalem in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 19. Here he says, after 14 years I went up again. Is it 17 years, or, or was the three part of the 14? Really, it doesn't matter. The point is that this has been going on consistently for many years, and that's part of how we see it as the divine message. Now, Paul's being very careful to explain his life after conversion. He's setting out to prove that this is the truth. It says, I was converted. I went away. I met with Peter. I saw James, but I met with Peter for two weeks plus a day. That was after three years of ministry. After 14 years, he said, I went to Jerusalem, and he's tracing out this ministry, his life. It's important that he's showing this because this message did not come from himself but from Jesus, and he's demonstrating this, okay? So people question, now, what is, which visit to Jerusalem is he talking about here? And this is important because you remember in chapter 1, verse 20, he says, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. He says, everything I'm telling you is the absolute truth before God. There were five times that Paul went to Jerusalem after his conversion. Which of these five times is he talking about? The first, um, the first visit to Jerusalem by Paul after his conversion was after leaving Damascus in Acts chapter 9. You remember Acts 9? He was converted. He believed in Jesus Christ. He stayed for many days in Damascus after his conversion. Verse 20 of Acts 9 says he immediately began preaching the gospel of Jesus in the synagogues before he ever went to Jerusalem. Verse 23 says it was many more days later that passed before the unbelieving Jews plotted to kill him and he left, so he went to Jerusalem. Three years, apparently, is how long he had been doing that before they decided to try to kill him, according to Galatians 1.18. That was his first visit to Jerusalem, and he must have discussed the gospel and agreed upon it during that course of time with Peter, in those 15 days. His second time that he went to Jerusalem was in what we call the famine visit. In Acts chapter 11, uh, there was a, uh, several years later, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and this prophet Agabus foretold by a revelation from God that there was going to be a famine. It's going to be a famine in the land, and so the churches sent famine relief to Jerusalem by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. Okay, that was his second visit. The third visit is what we call the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. That's where the the false teachers have come into Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were, and they're spreading the same old message, add works to gospel, add works to faith. You got to be, in fact, Acts chapter 15 verse 1 is their motto that we'll look at. Um, Unless you're circumcised according to the, the method, the tradition of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they were teaching people. And so all of the church got together in Acts 15, and in, in, in no uncertain terms, they said, look especially at verses 9 and 11 of Acts 15, it is by grace through faith. You can't work. You can't earn it. And then they passed along specific suggestions for the Gentile believers so they wouldn't offend Jewish believers. 
That's the third time he went. The fourth time Paul went to Jerusalem was at the end of his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18. And, and I think you have these in your notes, correct? You're, you're able to see these in your notes. Um, in Acts chapter 18, Paul landed by ship at Caesarea, and then he went up, he ascended up to Jerusalem. And then when he was finished there, he went down, back down to Antioch, and then he launched his third missionary journey. That's the, the fourth time Paul went to Jerusalem. The final time was when he went into prison in Acts chapter 21. Um, he had been determined to get to Jerusalem by the time of the Feast of Pentecost. He was warned, when you get there, you're going to be thrown in prison, so don't go. He said, I have to go. And it happened just as they said. And then he would eventually appeal to Caesar. So those are his five visits. Now, many people believe that here in Galatians chapter 2, what we're seeing is Paul's visit to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, but that's his third visit. He's either left one out here, but he can't have been doing that because he said before God, what I'm writing to you, I'm not lying. He can't leave something out. The, sim- the, the topics are similar. The, there are similarities here, but Paul's entire argument is, look, I've only seen the apostles twice in my entire 14 years at least, maybe up to 17 years. I'm not lying to you. This is something that came from God. So he, he really, as we saw in Acts chapter 11, we didn't, we didn't go to the verses, but it was Acts 11 that Agabus said, by a revelation from God, there's going to be a famine. And that's why Paul went up to Jerusalem. So those are the reasons I believe this is the second visit, Paul's second visit uh, to Jerusalem after his conversion. It falls in line with his argument here in Galatians. It matches the, the reason that he went up, the revelation from God. Why does it matter? Because again, he's proving this is all part of his evidence for why you should believe this is the gospel. Everything that's happening in Paul's life, in his ministry, and because of the gospel, is because of God. It all comes from the Lord. So and his, his point is, he's been faithful to this message. Before he ever went to see Paul, Peter or anybody in Jerusalem for three years, before he ever went to Jerusalem again for 14 years, nothing's changed. It's been the same message. So he says here in Galatians, he says, when I went, I didn't go alone. He says, I took Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas was another example of a faithful person to this message over many years. Acts 11 says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. His name, this man that we call Barnabas, his name is actually Joseph. But the apostles called him son of encouragement, Barnabas, because of how faithful and encouraging he was in this message over the course of a long time. So Barnabas is another example of faithfulness over time to this message. Titus, Paul says, was a Gentile convert who became a partner and fellow worker. Again, a long period of time, according to 2 Corinthians 8. He was faithful to this message. These three men go up to Jerusalem in Galatians 2, he's, he's talking about. And they went because of a revelation. Again, Acts chapter 11, you can read about it, verses 27 to 30. But here's the reason that he's replaying all of this for them. Here's the reason that he, that he talks about this. His ministry and his, this gospel came from God. Notice this. Even the trip to Jerusalem, this, this visit he's talking about, didn't come from man but from God. Paul and Barnabas did not go with Titus to Jerusalem because they were reporting back to headquarters, Right? Like, uh, here we are to report back to you uh, what we've done with the message you've given us, with the the commission that you gave us. There's no reporting back. They didn't send a summons to Paul. Even the reason that he came to Jerusalem a second time was because God told him to. 
So that, that's why he's going through this. That's why he's relaying this to them. This is all God's work. And while he's there, he met with the apostles privately. He says, those who seemed influential, it appears that way, he says. It's a way to, to refer to them. You know, the popular apostles, the famous ones, he's saying. And it's not a negative connotation. There, there'll be a negative connotation in verse 6. When we get to that, we'll talk about it. But while he's in Jerusalem, he meets with them. And since he's there, he sets before them the gospel. He says, this is the one I've been faithfully preaching to the Gentiles for years. He says, consider this. Now, why did he do that? Verse 2 says he did that because he wanted to make sure he was not running or had not run in vain. Vain means empty, worthless. I wanted to make sure I wasn't wasting my time. (laughs) I want to make sure I'm not doing ministry for no reason. He's been running, he says, constant exertion, taking great pains, making a whole lot of sacrifices to bring this gospel. I want to make sure it's not for nothing, he says. But wait a minute. Why is he asking these men? You know, if you've been following along with with Paul's argument here, the whole point is this all came from God. So why is he asking these guys in, 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 in Jerusalem? There are a lot of different reasons that are given for this, but here's what I think we see in the text. Paul does not say I set before them the gospel in order to see if it's the right one. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, I want to see if my ministry has been worthless. If I've been running in vain, if it's all been a waste of time. He's certain of the gospel. What he's not certain of is man, humanity, himself to begin with. It's possible that he could have the right message but be doing his evangelism all wrong. He could be running worthlessly. He's certain of the gospel, but not himself. He's also not certain of these mere men that he's talking to. He may be out there doing all this ministry, and these guys are undermining him back in Jerusalem, saying, no, you've got to have you know, works added into the gospel. So there's a humility here. What we see from Paul is a lack of hubris, you know, human pride, mankind's certainty of himself. Paul says, let's get together privately and consider this. Are we all on the same page with how to get this ministry done, with how to get this true gospel out there to people? Well, what happens in that meeting? Verse 3, the question comes up right away. What do we do with Titus? (laughs) You, You got Titus here with you. He's a Gentile convert. He's not circumcised. He's Greek. Why does that matter? Because for the Judaizers, that's the entry point. That is the very gateway into this false gospel. You get circumcised and then you start following the rest of the law. And so Titus is here and you're saying he's a believer but he's not circumcised. What are we going to do about this? Their actual quote, again, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was their whole motto. Paul brings him in here. Do we all have a complete understanding and agreement on the gospel? Because here's Titus. What are we going to do? The challenge is huge. The stakes are high, brothers and sisters. The lines are drawn, and we need to get the importance of what happens here. Because if they get this wrong, if they agree, Titus, you've got to be circumcised, they're all going to start writing that Peter and James and and the rest of the apostles who are here, they're going to start writing the New Testament with a false gospel to us. And then we're going to get handed down through the ages a false gospel that we've got to work our way to God, and then their eternal salvation is, is, is in danger, and so is ours. They need to get this question right. They need to get the answer right. The result in verse 3 is Titus was not forced to be circumcised. The result is no, no human works, no human effort. Salvation comes by God's grace through faith. 
That means that Paul's been faithful with the message. That means that Barnabas has been faithful. That means that Titus has been faithful. That means that the apostles in Jerusalem have been faithful over years and years of time with the true gospel, the message. Do you want confirmation that this is the right one? Do you want certainty that you're following the right gospel? Don't look to your feelings. Don't look at what you want for yourself. Look at how the glory of God is on display here in the lives of all of these different men faithfully delivering and believing this message over years and years, even 2,000 years later, for over 2,000 years. Because if you back it up even to the time of Israel, the only gospel is the work of Jesus Christ for us. Whether people in Israel were looking ahead to him or we today looking back to him, that's the focus of these verses. The faithfulness over time to the message, to the gospel, it's lasted Now, I wanted to take a minute and just contrast this stand that Paul takes with Titus with the decision that they're going to make later on with Timothy. Here in Galatians 2 and Acts 11, there's a question, right? The content of the gospel. Do you have to be circumcised to be saved? No. Okay, it's settled. Titus is not going to be circumcised. After this question, again, that church council in Acts 15, um, they pass along those those recommendations um, to not offend people, uh, the Jewish believers, uh, the truth of the gospel is going to offend people, right? When, whenever you tell somebody, look, here's the gospel, you're a sinner and you can't fix it and you're going to go to hell unless you believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, for a person to hear that, that's offensive. I, I don't want to hear that message, right? I, I don't need any of that stuff. I want positive. I want encouraging. I want what makes me feel better. And, and we're, to, we're coming to them with a, with a message that's entirely offensive to the human flesh. So what we're going to try to do is not offend them by other means when we go to evangelize people, when we go to tell people about the gospel, right? We're not going to go up to them and say, oh, you're a Raiders fan. <laughs> well, I'm a Broncos fan, so we can't have anything in common. <laughs> no, the gospel transcends any kind of division among humanity, right? <laughs> Even that one. Okay. By the way, I'm not, I, don't, I don't watch football anymore. But don't offend them with your works if you don't have to. For, for their sake, you know, stay away from what's been sacrificed to idols. Stay away from blood, from what's been strangled, from sexual immorality. Okay, those were the recommendations given to Gentile believers. So you don't offend Jewish believers. After this, Paul goes on a second missionary journey. He doesn't take John Mark because he had deserted them in the first one. He picks up instead a dedicated disciple named Timothy. Now he wants Timothy, Paul does, to go on his, his second missionary journey with him. But Timothy, Timothy's father is a Greek. And all believers speak well of him. He, he's a believer. He, he has come to believe in Jesus Christ. All the believers are speaking well of him. But he's a Greek. So in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, Paul takes Timothy and he circumcises him. We said, why would he do that? Acts chapter 16, verse 3 says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. He said Paul needed to get this gospel into places where Jewish people were, but they weren't going to listen to a thing he had to say because of the offense that Timothy was coming, a Greek was coming into their midst. And they weren't going to have that. They were not going to listen, so for the sake of not offending them so that they could spread the gospel... Timothy made a personal sacrifice to become circumcised. 
It enabled them to preach the gospel, to deliver these decisions that they'd been reached. And the result in Acts 16 verse 5 is this. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. You see, when it came to a question of whether there's anything required to be saved, Titus, is he saved without being circumcised? The answer is yes, he is. No, nothing else can be added. But when it's a question of can I get the gospel to these people, well, no, because of this and this and this, well, then I'll sacrifice all of those things so I can get the gospel to people. So Paul, in Acts 11 and Galatians 2, goes to Jerusalem with the firm stance in the gospel. But he checks himself while he's there. And so that's another lesson that's important for us. You see it in your notes. The humility in certainty. Humility in our certainty. See, we've been saying all along, the gospel is certain. The gospel is true. It never changes. It never can change. We need to have humility in. Where the humility comes in is, is whether we're faithful to it. Whether we're faithful with it. The certainty is in the word of the Lord. It's in the message from God. It's not in me. It's not because I'm so sure. It's not because you're so sure. It's not because we feel good about this message. The message is sure and true. The question is, am I true to it? Am I faithful with it? That's where our constant humility needs to be directed towards us. Certainty towards the Lord, humility in ourselves. But the first reason to believe that the divine gospel is divine, it comes from God, is the true one, is because of the confirmation of faithfulness over time. The second reason, number two in our notes, we need to believe, we can be certain that the divine gospel is true, and we believe it rather than any false gospel because of the victory over the challenge from false brothers against it. There's victory here over the challenge from false brothers against it, verses four and five. Not only did Paul remain faithful over a period of time when it was a challenge, a serious challenge faced it, they stood firm. How serious was it? Well, according to verse 4, the goal of these people was to bring us into slavery. That's how Paul characterizes their goal, degrade us from free persons, free in Christ, to enslaved with no way out. How would they do that? Well, it's not by coming in and pronouncing themselves as, hello, I'm a false brother. Good to meet you. How can I lead you astray today? Right? That's not what they did. There was a three-step plan. You see it in your notes. A, the first part of their plan was to impersonate us as brothers and sisters. Impersonate us. They disguised themselves as brothers. They come proclaiming, I believe in Jesus too. I believe that salvation is by grace through faith. Of course I do. And they seem genuine and good. They use many of the same words. And they come in, yeah, everything you said, that's, yeah, we believe all of that. There's no flashing signs that say false teacher, false brother. 2 Corinthians 11 explains how they can be so effective. You can turn there if you'd like. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 12, Paul explains how they're so effective. Paul says, I'm going to keep on calling them out. I'm going to keep on after them, keep showing them, calling them out, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Did you catch that, brothers and sisters? Anybody that has any other gospel does not work on the same terms that we do. We have a divine message, a God-given message that saves people for God's glory. Nobody else has that. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. 
They come. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, just like he does in Galatians 2, they come in disguised as true brothers and sisters, claiming to be apostles. But how are they so successful? Here's what he says. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Listen, we've said this before, but Satan does not work in a devil costume, right? He does not come dressed up like the devil (laughs) that we picture. When he comes, he comes to deceive and to trick people into following him rather than Jesus. So he comes in a way that's appealing, in a way that's convincing. He comes as a friend. He comes with a false gospel, and those who follow in him, those that, that Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 11, his servants, Satan's servants, they come to us, not in a package labeled lies, but truth. And they come as the friendliest people, the nicest people, the most likable people, just like Satan does. They are his servants. They follow his footsteps. So Paul says these guys come in as if they're brothers, but they're false. And the word he uses is pseudo, pseudo brothers. They're fake, but they look real at face value. They, they sound genuine at first. So they impersonate true Christians, but they're not really our brothers and sisters at all. That's the first step. The the second step they do is B, in our notes, they infiltrate us in our freedom. They infiltrate. Secretly brought in, Paul says. They secretly slipped in so they could spy out our freedom that we have in Christ. So they don't just try to impersonate us. They try to infiltrate, come in among us as Christians. They slipped into the private meeting between the apostles and Paul. Apostle Paul and the other apostles, they slipped into the churches in Galatia. Brothers and sisters, they still work this way today. They still come into our worship services. They still come into our koinonia groups, our discipleship opportunities, and they slip in and they just talk like us. They look like Christians. They're not immediately obvious. Many times, you least expect them. They seem so mature. They say the right things. They act the right way. Jude warned about them in Jude 4. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's the key. It's not how nice they are. It's not how much good things they have, how many good things they have to say. It's not how much truth they have. It's all the error that's mixed in. It's the way that they hook us with the wrong gospel They deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on in Jude 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. They're among us. Now our job is not to walk around pointing at people. It's you, isn't it? (laughs) It's you, isn't it? But but, but to watch, but to listen, to encourage one another with the truth. And that's why we need the gospel in our own lives and in the lives of those around us here at church and the lives of those people who are not in the church. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, you're going to face wolves, savage wolves. They're going to come in. And the people, there would be people that would arise from your own number, Paul says, from among the pastors who are going to speak twisted things. Whether they come in from outside or whether they arise from within, though, they infiltrate the church. They, They did it in the New Testament, brothers and sisters. How much more will they do it today? How much easier would it be for them to do it today when we don't have an apostle like Paul? or John, or, or even a pastor like Timothy. Why would they want to do that? He says, so they can spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. They want to watch us. They want to see, where do you have freedom? What are the things that you're doing? 
they would have said back then, oh, you mean you're not circumcised? How, how are you saved? <laughs> they would say today, oh, you went to a dance? You played a card game? <laughs> you have a tattoo? <laughs> how are you saved? They pick up areas of freedom while among us as false brothers and sisters, and, they say, and then they move on to step three. See in our notes, but before we get there, we want to make sure that we understand there are standards that make Christians Christians and, and, and designate us as, as separate from those who are not Christians. We don't get to set those standards up ourselves. The gospel is the standard, the truth of God's word that saves us in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. If someone doesn't have that, they cannot be saved. We understand that. But we don't get to set up our own standards. We can look at outward pattern of works and we can doubt, we can question, we can, we can work with one another and call one another out and, and encourage one another. We can listen to the gospel that a person believed and deny what they say. No, that's not right. You can't be saved if that's what you believe. But after they've impersonated us and after they've infiltrated us and they start calling out who's saved and who's not because of their own standards, see the third step is that they impose obedience to a law. They impose obedience to Allah. They bring us into slavery, Paul says. He's not talking about physical slavery because the context here is the contrast between freedom and Christ and slavery to the law. The slavery he's talking about is being brought into the control of a person or a group of people who tell you how to live. You've got to do this. You must do that. You can't say this. You must say that. This is legalism, and this is what slavery, this is what it leads to, slavery. Rather than Jesus' commands being our focus, and what, what did he say? Teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Rather than doing any of that, rather than loving him because he first loved us and he saved us, they say, look, follow this rule. You got to do this. You can't be saved. Or we invent new rules that seem spiritual and, and possible only if a person is saved, and so this is the danger of enslaving us to what people would say rather than what Jesus says. Paul warned the Colossians in chapter 2 of his letter. He says, don't let anybody pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or festivals. You know, you have to eat this. You can't do that. Don't obey their rules, Paul says. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch in Colossians 2. Because we, we work tirelessly on those rules and those laws. And we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and then we start telling everybody else around us, you got to do this too. You cannot taste, don't handle, don't touch, don't do any of that stuff. Man's rules, his religious laws become our focus, our ruler, our master instead of Jesus. That's what it does. That's how it works into enslaving us. And that's why this was such a serious challenge. It may not have seemed like an obvious challenge, but it was serious it was a massive challenge. It was a carefully planned three-step operation to get into the church, to ch change the gospel, but these brothers did not waver. Paul says in verse 5, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. It's like, no, it's not possible. They didn't even allow it for the sake of argument. You know, they might have come and said, let's just say for the sake of argument that when you add to the gospel, no. <laughs> no. Let's not say that even for the sake of argument. God never changes, his word never changes, his gospel is clear. We're not even going to entertain the possibility that it's changed. So the divine gospel is seen in the lives of those who hold fast to it. The divine gospel is seen in the lives of those who win out over the challenges that come against it, and that's what glorifies God. 
The gospel has withstood every and any challenge that has come against it for 2,000 years. Like with point number one, there's another lesson for us, and we'll close with this. Again, I know that we said there were three ways, and we've only gotten through the first two, but that's all right. Lord willing, we'll be able to re- meet again next week and see the third way that this brings glory to God. We see it, but the lesson that we're going to take, another lesson from these verses, is a healthy courage. A healthy courage. Just like there was humility in our certainty before, there is in the gospel a healthy courage. A courage that we must have because we're so certain of God's message, the gospel. We cannot yield. We can't move from it even for a moment. Not even for a second. This isn't our message, it's God's. So even as we humble ourselves, we are absolutely, unquestionably, immovably strong and grounded in this truth, this firm foundation. So, the glory of God is the persuasion that this is the divine gospel. That's the apologetic. That's the reason you need to know this. You need to be convinced of it as I need to be convinced of it. How do we see the glory of God in the lives of those who've believed? Namely, that immense change from anything else to this gospel, specifically in these verses, the confirmation of faithful to, faithfulness over time and victory over challenges. There's a third reason, but again, like we said, we'll wait till next week, Lord willing. Father, we praise you, God. We lift up the name of our Savior, Jesus, our Lord. God, not because he needs his name lifted up, God. His name is already exalted above every name. Father, we lift up his name because that's our recognition to him. That's our submission to him in love, in fear, in thankfulness for the salvation that he has brought us. God, when we were at our darkest time, when we were in the darkest period, when we understood that we were consumed with sin, and Father, we couldn't find our way out, we couldn't get our way out, even if we wanted to, Father, we wouldn't have turned to you. But in Jesus, God, you work in us. You give us faith to believe in Jesus Christ. You give us repentance, Father, to turn away from all of this sin that's in ourselves, that's in this world, that Satan disguises and makes appealing to us, God, you work in us. You give us the gift of repentance to turn away from all that, to believe in Jesus. And God, you receive all of the glory for that. We praise you, Father. We lift up the name of our Savior because he is worthy. He deserves our worship, our devotion, our fear, our love. God, I pray that that would remain true of us, not just here, but as we leave and as we go out into the world this week, Father, at work, in the grocery stores, at the parks, God, wherever we are and whatever we're doing, God, that we would glorify you. We would glorify Jesus. We ask this in his perfect, pure, holy name. Amen.